You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon to people on the East Coast and good morning to all of you in Western time zones. Clark, it is a real pleasure to have you with me today. Let me talk for two seconds about my last two guests because they are important to what we've been seeing going on in the world around us and particularly to my conversation today with Clark and then I'll dive into my discussion with Clark. Two weeks ago, we had Larry Sabato from the University of Virginia on where Clark actually went to college. Larry was pretty straightforward at that time that he didn't see a red wave coming. It was going to be more like a red, I guess a tide was what he used, but he did not think it was going to be a complete wipeout. And I guess Larry yet again was correct on what happened in the elections last week. And then last week I had Bobby Turner from Turner Impact on um, talking all about how Bobby uh, has taken a real leadership role in sustainable development in the United States and creating sustainable communities that serve working class families across the country. And if you have the chance to watch that, I think it is quite compelling what Bobby has done as it relates to Turner Impact's focus on sustainability and on doing right. Uh, And that is a great segue into my guest today. Um, Let me do a quick intro, uh, Clark, and then we'll dive into our conversation. Clark Murphy is a leadership expert who advises the world's top companies on leadership strategies that fuel profitable growth and value for all stakeholders. Known for his authenticity and integrity, he is a trusted advisor on issues of diversity, sustainability, board formation, and succession. He has particular expertise in helping boards include sustainable competencies and track record into multi-year CEO succession processes. As the former CEO of Russell Reynolds from 2011 to 2021, he spearheaded a purpose-driven approach to business and led the firm through its greatest period of growth. In his new book, Sustainable Leadership, Lessons of Vision, Courage, and Grit from CEOs who Dared to Build a Better World, Clark tells the stories of dynamic business executives who are using their positions to solve the most complex social and economic challenges of our time. Since 2021, Clark has co-hosted the Redefiners podcast, interviewing courageous leaders who are redefining their organizations and themselves to deliver extraordinary results. Clark won the AESC Lifetime Achievement Award. He is known for his authenticity and integrity. He is a founding member of the 30% Club, which seeks to change gender and diversity at the board level. Clark is passionate about doing well by doing good, and he serves on the board of the Carnegie Hall and the New York City Ballet. So, Clark, I guess my first question to you is, Constantine Alexandricus succeeded you as CEO of Russell Reynolds. Since you all are experts on succession planning, was the transition to Constantine expertly done? Well, we did. We, we said we were going to run a process that we run for our clients around the world all the time. So we did everything you would expect from the behavioral testing. We looked at outside candidates. We had internal candidates. We had a, a nominating committee that ran that. The process ran about a year. So we it was textbook and he was chosen uh, and is, a, is doing a great job. But it literally, we said, listen, 
considering what we do for a living, this has got to be perfect and no pressure, Constantine. You got to do a great job as well because we've got to show that the process worked. So it, literally, we followed everything we do with our clients around the world around succession. So there are eight board members at Russell Reynolds, and I was I was curious to, on that note of you all being experts on succession planning. You're also experts on board composition and and governance of, of both companies, big and and small. Is eight the ideal number of board members? I think it's between eight and ten. Again, we're we're we you would call us a mid cap company, though we're privately held, and it's confusing because we're actually we were formed by Russ as a New York corporation, which has an independent board of directors since day one. We had two retire. You'll see another one join shortly, but it is run like a public company in terms of Price Waterhouse Audit and Audit Committee since the inception of the firm. But I think it's eight to ten. I think more than that. Are you if if you're a really large cap company with multiple committees, you might want to get to twelve, but you really ten is a great number given the number of normal committees you'd have. And as you think about the competitive landscape, Clark, of Russell Reynolds versus a Spencer Stewart or a Corn Ferry, Corn Ferry is public. Is there mm-hmm. any advantage in your business to being a public company? Well, I'm biased, of course. But I think there's massive, and you would know as well, massively biased in favor of of, of private. If you're going to serve clients well, consistently, and I'm not taking a backhanded swipe at our public competitors. I'm just saying I'm a firm believer if you're in a client service business, you should not be having to worry about your public shareholders at the same time. All you should worry about are your clients and the people who work in your firm. And as you think about LinkedIn. I remember when LinkedIn was, if you will, coming online, there were lots of people who foresaw the the the, the end of executive right. search and that LinkedIn right. was going to disintermediate all of the fancy search consultants and professionals that you have at Russell Reynolds. And my understanding is it's 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 done almost the exact opposite. It's it's made executive search firms more relevant today than prior to LinkedIn. Why is that? Why did we get that wrong when LinkedIn came on to the onto the scene. Right. And we had the same concern strategically as well. So who could have imagined when you and I went into business, a resume was this secret document that got handed off in a, in a, in a dark room to someone else uh, secretly. So then you put 250 million resumes in the public domain, but that's not recruiting. You know, probably 95% of the people we recruit in the C-suite, the CEO or boardrooms in, in 27 countries around the world, they're not looking to change jobs. So you're recruiting them actively. They're not, they're not looking. LinkedIn is making availability of backgrounds and, and experiences. So I think it's turned more into a community about enhancing your own career. And of course, you can flip switches to show that you might be looking around or, or considering other things. But it's become more a community of, of career development than it has a recruitment, leading recruitment vehicle. I also think we often say that you... You recruit for resume, but you fire for fit. So there's a deep sense of, of any search firm making sure that culture fit is correct and that the referencing helps you understand not only their performance, but their future potential. And will it fit into where this company is going to go? You're recruiting for the future. And this is where some leaders fall. If they're recruiting for today or themselves, which is really yesterday in a sense, you're not recruiting for the needs of the company in the future. And so that's where I think there's a difference between looking backwards and, and thinking forwards about performance. And did the emergence of LinkedIn, if you will, 
force you and the management team at Russell Reynolds to think about moving the firm in a different direction? In other words, was there any byproduct of LinkedIn coming on that at that time, because of the seeming competitive threat, you all said, oh, we need to go deeper into governance practice. We need to go deeper into something that emerged out of that competitive threat coming from LinkedIn? Great question. So two things. It did transform. It absolutely transformed the technology industry broadly defined 10 or 12 years ago at middle to more junior levels in terms of recruiting, in essence, engineers or, or, or general managers of engineers or in software development, et cetera. And so many of almost all of those mid and large cap technology companies have their own in-house recruiting and they're using many different online, LinkedIn being one of them, online databases to recruit for themselves. For us, it was more broadly saying our core client is in fact either the chair of NomGov, the, uh, sorry, the board of directors and the chair of the nominating governance committee, or is the chief executive. And so what it did is, and we said, listen, we're only going to focus on the board and the CEO and our candidates in the C-suite. That's all we're going to do in the limited number of services that address their needs. So, so replenishing and shareholder activism kind of sped up our work with, we launched a board effectiveness business, which was just from lawyers and consultants, nobody in the search business, giving effective governance help to mid-cap and upper mid-cap. The large caps tend to have pretty strong governance, but there may be a problem with a merger or an acquisition. And then what started out as a management assessment business in the M&A world of 15, 18 years ago, saying, can you help emerging company figure out who they should pick? After the global financial crisis, boards of directors said, we will never be caught out again. I want an independent third party to say, if I have three or four successors, I think they're the three or four best. But what if only one of them benchmarks well against the best in the marketplace? Or do all four of them benchmark well? I want an independent party to come help me do that. And then what evolved was a leadership development saying, if two of the four can be CEO. One of the four will never be a CEO for a variety of reasons. But the third of the four, if worked on these two things and probably moved to international experience or finance or ops or marketing, may in two to three years be a candidate for CEO. And and we got into that business. So all of this focused narrowly on the board, the CEO and the C-suite. So we did focus on the market we're best in, in doing. And giving longer-term advice to a board and a chief executive than four decades of transactions where they either replaced someone or they were expanding. That's what we did for four decades. And now we've ended up in this longer-term advice business around picking the people. And final question as it relates to LinkedIn, how tempting was it as you all saw the market cap of LinkedIn and how they were basically, if you will, creating a less people-based business and more of a technology-based business yes. for you to try and chase those technology multiples, if you will. I, I, I can only imagine that sitting there looking at them, you sort of had a couple of board meetings where you all said, man, if we did a little bit more like that, we'd right. be a little bit more valuable. That's right. So a couple of great question. So we're really, from the beginning, incredibly close to LinkedIn of all the major search firms and saw it ultimately through a lot of discussions that we could help each other. So as they thought about new products, et cetera, or or how we use their services, we actually were one of their pilots. 
and some of our bigger competitors, Corn Ferry, who was trying to build similar businesses on their own in an RPO business, they were they were directly competing with LinkedIn, whereas we were a big customer of LinkedIn. So in fact, anything they launched, or not anything, a lot of things they launched and tested, we were actually the pilot and we didn't tell anybody. So we actually looked at each other as how we helped each other and how we leveraged each community, ours being the C-suite and theirs being a broader community. It was actually kind of fun. Uh, so, so we enjoyed and continue to enjoy a great relationship. So flipping it around a little bit, Clark, to what I would call talent factories. You wrote a long paper on CEO Academy companies. Yes. Uh, and Russell Reynolds looked at a number of these companies, such as GE and IBM and Procter & Gamble and Honeywell, and you identify that these companies are, if you, if you look across the, the entire corporate landscape and you all looked at publicly traded companies in your research and, and, and a, huge, a huge percentage of the people running these other companies came out of these training programs. And clearly some of them benefit from just having scale and the ability to invest in talent management and talent development. But I think that's too, if you will, convenient an excuse for many companies that should be spending more time on talent development. And these companies have really created very special programs and ways about nurturing talent. For those people who don't have the resources of a GE or an IBM, what are the couple things that they ought to be, all of us ought to be focusing on as it relates to talent management and talent development? Well, first of all, is the fact that they know that you're investing in them, first and foremost, which is the communications around, which is what I think we've learned from the pandemic, is when we launched a development business, I was nervous that in a recession, that would be something that was, was cost-cutting. As companies discovered the empathy gene or not in the pandemic, Walker Dunlop will invest in your career and help you get out of the leasing business into the principal investing business or whatever it might be. And people go, whoa, okay, I'm going to stay here. And as somebody said, I'm in Europe all this week giving talks on sustainability in various cities around the the, the, the continent. And somebody said the other day, you know, we've been talking about the war for talent for 22 years. The war's over. Talent won. And I thought it was a great line. And so talent wants to know you are going to invest in them. And then how much is hand, hands-on or Zoom-on apprenticeship and mentoring? And like, you know, Willie, those two questions really didn't jive with the other two. You could be so much more efficient. Think about how you ask that the next time. You go, okay, thank you very much. Or you're saying, I want you to go into this client experience. I'm taking the back seat. You're taking the front seat. And I want you to make the presentation and give feedback. Or it's getting really senior mentors to say, how do I navigate this? All of those are leadership development. And and some companies realize that the talent war, the best companies in the world, retain the best people longer than their competitors. Yes, they have to have a good strategy. Yes, they have to implement the strategy well. Yes, their supply chains have to be efficient and profitable. But if great people aren't driving all of that, you know, even, even the, the former head of McKinsey said, if you don't have great leaders, st- strategy loses. That's the head of McKinsey. So yeah. it's a mindset and then it's an action set. That just makes me think the overlap between strategy consulting and, and uh, talent management, talent recruitment, they kind of sit on top of each other. And you just said, you know, you can't have one without the other. Have there, have there ever been, have any of the services that 
your firm provides ever been thought about being incorporated into a strategy consulting firm or are there, are there, are there just kind of conflicts there? There are conflicts there. And the funniest thing is when, when uh, not the current CEO of McKinsey, but no, the current CEO of McKinsey, when he took over and his first discussion and his first day on the job, he says, we're not going to go into the recruiting business. How crazy a statement is that when all the things you can talk about at McKinsey, but his predecessor actually went out of the job writing a book about leadership. And, and it, when you and I started, I'm a little older than you are, but when you and I started, we followed the money. We followed where the capital was. But with a trillion dollars in cash on the sidelines in today's world looking for deployment, right now, talent wins because there's so much cash around the world. So they're looking for great talent. And I think the nature of a leader has changed quite significantly uh, over the past Certainly over the last 20 years, and certainly over the last two or three, this hierarchy of the person at the top knows everything, a super person, has gone, and then it was the vision thing, and then it was offshoring, and then it was growth, 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 and then it was efficiency. And I think now there's a guy named Henry Timms who writes a great book about, about influence and new power, saying that as, as the pandemic told us that the, the, the pointy top of hierarchy has gone more into a, a flatter sense of what's leadership and what's influence, I like to say, to me, leadership is no longer about leading. It's about creating followership. And if nobody's following you, you're taking a walk. So you have to create followership in what what I think younger people want in today's world. And they want to know they can learn. They know that you care post-pandemic. They want to know that you'll make them better and that they're on a winning team. And they will stay. But this sense of creating followership as a great leader is something people need to wrap their head around a little bit. So really, it's a really good way of expressing what is the real challenge that, that many, many CEOs and leaders face today, particularly given this virtual world that we live in, where you're kind of not seeing the whites of someone's eyes all the time. And so to your point, that's a, that's a great way of uh, framing it. Clark, you you race sailboats. You've done seven Atlantic crossings, the last one with three of your adult children, yes. uh, which must have been really great. Um, and you've also, while sailing, you've hit whales. Uh, <laughs> talk, talk about for a moment your near miss with a whale of an object and how that changed your view of the seas. Yes. So so I've spent my life in the water. I started in the Chesapeake Bay, not far from where you're sitting right now in, in Annapolis, Maryland, and then the Magothee River. And then one of my great passions has been ocean sailing as, as with several of my siblings. So I've done a lot of races in two of the transatlantic races, which are from Newport, Rhode Island to the Isle of Wight or cows in England. And you go over the top of the earth like an airplane does and, and, and come down because that's the shortest route. Two different times we hit whales. The first was in the middle of the night. And when a race boat is going 15 or 16 knots, say 21 to 23 miles an hour, and goes to a dead stop in a millisecond. This is not a good feeling. And everybody has a job that you do. Somebody's doing a grab bag. Somebody's getting a life raft in case something's wrong. The first time it happened, my job was to go, and I was sleeping at the time. And you always sleep with your feet forward. So if you hit something, you collapse your knees into your jaw. You don't slam your head against the side of the boat. So I, I wake up with my jaw and my knees. I go and open the floorboards to see if we're taking on water, which we're not. The second time we hit it about eight o'clock in the morning. This is four years later. That's a longer story I won't go into. And then four years after that, I'm at the helm of a boat going really fast. We're three quarters of the way across the Atlantic. The whole race was in the fog. 
and it's about nine o'clock in the morning, and I see a whale breaching about 150 feet, 200 feet in front of us, and I, and I see the gray and white speckle, and I scream, and we're in a big boat going fast with a big spinnaker up, 14 stories tall mast, 14 story mast. And I scream, whale, and I spin the wheel hard to windward, and the boat goes into like a long skid on an ice path in a car. Boat's going sideways, skidding down the ocean. We just come along and miss the whale to discover it is a 40-foot steel container that is covered in barnacles, and we all almost died. You hit a container. I've told my wife, Whitney, we are super well-prepared. I've been doing this my whole life, and we manage risk. We really manage risk well, but the one thing you can't manage is if you hit a container, you go down in two minutes, and you're gone. There's, there's, there's really no way of coming back, and we miss this thing by like eight or 10 feet to the port side of the boat. While I'm freaking out as this happens, of course, we're in the skid and there's so much wind in the spinnaker, the, the, the force blows the top of the fittings off the top of the mast and 14 stories of sailcloth goes out over the ocean. And then we had a second problem to deal with, but that's for another day. So, so this, was a, this was a moment in time, let me tell you. So that got you very focused on, if you will, the environment in a, it, it got you focused on the environment and an environment that you're very a familiar with and one that you also want to protect. You then go to Davos and you have a meeting with Lise Kingo, who is the CEO of the UN Global Compact. And I thought it was really interesting, Clark, that, you know, Lise has been a leader, but wasn't getting real traction. She kept saying, you know, the UN Compact continues to write these pieces and everyone's kind of giving lip service to it. And what do we kind of need to do? And she was, I guess, the founder of the triple bottom line, uh, which is economic, social, and environmental priorities. And the two of you from having read a little bit about it, you realized that you needed to really focus on the people side of the equation. It's not so much the goals. It's let's build a generation of sustainable leaders. Um, And in that, and the, the paper that you wrote, Clark said the most successful leaders all had a sustainability mindset combined with four specific competencies, multi-level system thinking, stakeholder inclusion, disruptive innovation, and long-term activation. Can you briefly just summarize either which one of those or how they all work together to create these sustainable mindsets and leaders? Absolutely. So so super briefly, we interviewed, we agreed with the United Nations, the 55 chief executives from India to Singapore to Europe and America were the most successful on people, planet, and profit. And we interviewed them and tested them, and, and they all spiked in these areas. So, so just let's look at two of them really quickly. And what would you look for, Willie Walker, in running a company and saying, I need the next generation of leaders because I believe we have hundreds and hundreds of incredibly successful, sustainable leaders, but we need tens of thousands, and we need them now. So you at Walker Dunlop, how do you recognize them earlier in the organization to have greater impact faster? So multi-level systems thinking, it's like a big mouthful. Systems thinking is complexity. I already am in the real estate world, in choppy financial markets. It's complex, multi-location, multi-asset classes. And now I'm going to layer on top of that environmental, societal, or governance issues. So not everybody deals with complexity as easily as you or somebody else might. So you're testing for conceptual thinking. You're looking for people who can prioritize the critical and the non-important, the complexity to make decisions, okay? So that would be one. The other, let's call stakeholder inclusion. 
We know a lot about being inclusive now, but that's not the same theme. What we're saying is, would you go to your biggest competitors at Walker Dunlop and say, hey, all these buildings, all these financings, all this power, all this footprint, what if all of us as an industry created a measurement way to look at financing buildings in different strata or different ways, and we'll do it collectively? Because our value creation is not in looking at sustainability. Our value creation is our relationships, our financings, our rates, our service. So uh, stakeholder inclusion is saying having the guts to include your competitors or a regulator early on to change the world. So what do I mean? A great example is Mayersk Shipping. They put $2 billion into creating clean engines fueled by clean fuels, clean methanol, clean ammonia. And they said, let's do this in this industry because the shipping industry doesn't make its money on what engine they use. They make their money in other things they do. And so they made a commitment that and bunker fuel is the dirtiest fuel in the world that, that ships use across the oceans. So imagine stakeholder inclusion is saying, we're going to say we're not afraid to involve a group of people. That's just two examples out of the four. Yeah. So, so on that, talk for a moment. One of the CEOs that you profile in your book, just talking about Maersk and what they're doing from a sustainable shipping standpoint. One of the CEOs you profile is Sven Holsether. Yeah, Holsether, great guy. Great guy. I probably butchered his name. Sorry about that, Clark. But he, you know, you talk about being over in Norway for the launching of the Yara Berkeley. That's right. That's right. Blue, eighty meter long, sustainable vessel, which would be the first autonomous vessel. Yeah, autonomous emission free vessel. The thing I found so fascinating about it was when you talk about Maersk, I sit there and say, okay, look, I've seen their containers all over the place. They're a massive Mm -hmm. shipping company, what have you. But this company is actually a fertilizer company. Um, And I thought it was fascinating that, I mean, you don't think about shipping being, I mean, it's obviously they need to ship their products all over the globe, but the idea that they got so bought in and and you call him one of your moonshot CEOs. Why don't you talk for a moment about him being a moonshot CEO and why what he has done has been so unique? Right. So, so we learned through, uh, through the book, people I call the moonshotters who say, because so many people are paralyzed, like, what do I do? I can't save the world. Well, the first thing is just decide on one or two things and move on them. Don't, don't, you don't have to save the whole world. The moonshotters say we're committing and we don't have all the answers. So when Mayers commits to all the, the, the methanol-fueled ships, at the time, there was enough methanol to fuel the fleet for a month. But Soren Scow of Maersk said, somebody else will figure that out while we're building the ships. And then Yara, fertilizer being arguably the second dirtiest industry in the world, Yara said, we're going to take the ammonia that we need to make fertilizer, and we're going to capture the emissions and the methane to then put it with hydrogen and make it a clean methanol fuel with the shipping industry. And Sven had this incredible vision about what he would do. And everybody said, you got to talk out of it. We're a dirty business. This is terrible. People don't care. He goes, nope, we're going to do this, the moonshotters. And he also said, we got to do this in a group. And I, one message I would say, Willie, on this podcast, this is a great expression in Africa that um, if you want to run fast, you run alone. If you want to run far, you run together. And so many of these sustainable CEOs figured out, I got to do this in partnership with other people. And, and Sven got together with, with the government of Singapore, SAS Airlines, Copenhagen Airports, other, other things. And this moonshot then becomes reality because everyone does their little part. And I'll just end by saying that the juxtaposition is what I call the 100 percenters in the book. 
which is, and we all know them, they're a bunch of people who need every detail certain, everything nailed down, everything absolutely correct, and no variability to go jump in the water. Well, guess what? The 100 percenters never get wet because they never make the jump. And the moonshotters said, we can't wait. We're going to go, and, and we're, we don't have all the answers right now. So another CEO that you profile is Lynn Good at Duke Energy. And you just mentioned that the fertilizer industry might be the second dirtiest industry in the, in the world. The energy industry is right up there. And Lynn starts in 2014 coming in where there's a river of sludge that uh, Duke Energy yeah. is responsible for. Coal ash, I guess it was. Yeah. And that was, kind of her, yeah. that was her first sort of, not first day on the job, but metaphorically yeah. speaking, she just arrived and boom, you've got this river filled with coal ash. And Lynn, over her period of time, and, and you were fundamental in getting her into the job, I guess, yeah. uh, Russell Reynolds and you worked on, on the search for her. But over you know, the last almost decade, eight years, she's really transformed Duke Energy to being one of the true leaders in America on sustainability and on environmental stewardship. Talk for a moment about Lynn and, and her leadership in such a challenging industry, because I, I think to some degree, Clark, we're all caught up with these headlines of, I don't know, you know, West Virginia and, and coal exploration and, and, and Senator Mnuchin yeah. holding the balance of power between being environmentally friendly and being, you know, a, an exploiter of natural resources. And it seems so polarized. How has Lynn been able to lead in such an effective way as CEO of the largest energy company in America? So, so a couple of things. So Lynn is incredibly calm, first of all, and pretty much everything went against her in the first year. They have 27 million gallons of coal ash goes into the Dan River. The merger with Carolina Power and Light had some issues. It doesn't matter now. And then they say, we're going to change that. We're going to shut down a coal plant, which is a good thing in Asheville, North Carolina, but we're going to build a new plant, cogen plant, which has all sorts of other issues around it. So she ends up with the regulators, the government and her citizens against the company, in fact. And so she says, we're going to take a long-term view on this and we're going to bring all the constituents to the table. And she said, how can everyone win here? And, and the joke I like, she always says, as running utility, the world's largest, America's largest utility, every month when she sends them their bills, she tries to talk them out of using her product, which is kind of ironic. Use less energy, use less energy. And ultimately, in, the, in Raleigh-Durham and Asheville, North Carolina, they developed a partnership with the community, with the government, and the utility itself that ultimately built this cogen plant and did a whole bunch of other things around the community and around low-income housing, where they could provide free energy, but they would turn off at the, at the, in the middle of the night when you didn't need something, or in the middle of the day when you did need something, they put in these monitors. They went to the office buildings of Asheville and said, we will put in free the same aspect, which again, in, in many of your listeners in the real estate business, these were fantastic outcomes that were good for everyone. And Lynn and the board of Duke have committed or committed a couple of years ago to over $50 billion of changing their fleet of power over the next 12 years. And, and one, of the, one of the other things we talk about is long-term activation. And, and where I think people struggle as sustainable leaders is, are you comfortable that your greatest success will be recognized when you were long gone from the job? Yeah. And Lynn Good is being recognized now 10 years later. But her greatest success probably comes in seven to 15 years from now. And that's where I think leaders in a quarter to quarter, particularly public company world, got to wrap their head around it to do good and do well. 
I'll take that to the next level of extreme, which is politicians who are elected every two years have no ability whatsoever to look out any distance. And I, uh, the, the story I would tell you, Clark, is when I was chairman of the D.C. Water and Sewer Authority, D.C. WASA, which is now D.C. Water, we run a consent decree by the Justice Department to build capture tunnels underneath the Potomac River. And it was a $2 billion project. And we were borrowing a huge amount of money to build those capture tunnels. And uh, we had a project to build a digester to take the solid bio waste from Blue Plains and to put it into a digester that was going to cost us $300 million. And we had a very contentious board meeting back in 2009, 2010 to approve investing $300 million at a time when we really didn't have $300 million to invest in it. We got it from the board. We did it. And I will never forget in 2017, I am long done with my chairmanship of DC Water. Mayor Adrian Fenty is far, far long gone as as mayor of DC. And almost everyone who had something to do with that actual decision was long gone. And there is the new head of DC water, the new chairman of the board and the new mayor of Washington DC on this wonderful ribbon cutting ceremony, taking credit for having built this wonderful digester to create this closed loop that now allows DC water to not be the largest point user of electricity in the entire DC area and to actually use renewables to, 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 to power the, the power plant. But your comment is so important as it relates to the mindset that says that I'm laying seeds, if you will, that are going to show themselves, you know, they're going to, they're going to bloom many years after I may be out of this seat, but it's good not only for the company, but it's good for society. Right. And, and, you know, attached to that, I'll tell you two anecdotal things I picked up from the UN report and then the book. So I interviewed over 95 chief executives all over the world, things you didn't expect. Aggressive listeners. Like I was asking the questions, but of course they were asking the questions back and all of them incredible listeners. Number one, number two, without question, 90% of them like ridiculously humble. They're changing the world. They're actually changing the world. That's the whole point of the book. How did you do this? What mistakes did you make? What lessons did you learn? But so humble and changing the world. And the last one, which comes back to leadership, which I certainly take home with me from this and I describe it as the learning quotient, the LQ. So you had IQ as a kid tested, EQ, you know, do you read people well? But to me, this world now is changing so quickly, whether it's digitization or capital markets or sustainability, is you as an individual, as a leader, are you still learning? And if you're an authentic leader, particularly on sustainability, a CEO has got to sit right alongside the vice presidents because they're learning at the exact same moment. And I think that then comes to the culture of the company. How high is the LQ of the company itself? And if Walker Dunlop, if, if, if the emerging leaders see you learning alongside them or saying, this is important to me, it should be important to you, those companies end up being more agile and they're going to win or they're already winning. This sense of LQ, which I'd never really thought about before. So you talk in the book about Bernard Looney, who's the CEO of BP, being one of those humble leaders. I guess there are two things on that. First of all, you've spent enough time with him to understand that he's a humble leader. But I think about it in the search business, about people who are out interviewing for some new fancy job. And that, if you will, humility quotient, how, you know, how search executives like yourself sit there and say, this person has the appropriate amount of humility to be able to handle this job. I think most people who go to meet with Russell Reynolds 
and they're in the, you know, they've been called up to talk about some great big CEO job. The last thing they want to do is show as if they like don't know everything on the face of the planet, that they can't totally master the job. And so I find it to be really interesting that that humility being one of the key characteristics of successful leaders in this new world. Yet I think most people who are my age, who are interviewing, I think average age of public company CEOs is 55, who are interviewing for these jobs, want to walk in and say, I know everything. What right. what can you give as a tip yeah. there so, to these people? So we, because Bernard is a wonderful example, right? Yeah. So we do joke in our business that anyone who comes in and tells you how humble they are and that money doesn't matter, you should have two flags up right there. Okay. <laughs> but but I've known Bernard a long time before he was CEO. And he has consistently through his career talked about how other people have made him successful or what we, they did together. He also, as, as I said, he has great listening skills, not just because, oh, he's a good listener. I'll follow him because he learns so much from other people to make him successful. And he's not ashamed. That's good for everybody. He's learning from them. He's becoming a better leader. But, but he talks about communication skills, listening skills, and the ability to know how to extract from listening skills, what can help him be more decisive as a leader. So he's he's not selfless, but he is humble in recognizing a lot of other people can make help him make a better decision faster than he could on his own. And I think generally, someone said to us recently, we're doing a CEO search of a public company, and we talked about humility. And they said, you know, we need a confident leader and a successful one to be a public company CEO, how the heck are you going to talk about humility? Well, it's really about how you approach the team, the leadership team, the way decisions are made, et cetera. So I'm very confident that there are many humble leaders out there that doesn't make them any less, uh, we call it ego drive, the, the, the drive to succeed. We test for ego drive. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. But confidence, decisiveness, ambition, that's all you can have all of those things and still be humble. Yeah. So in the book, Clark, you of the of the identified leaders in sustainability, you segment them into the born, uh, the convinced, and the awoken. So you yes. have from your research, about 45% are the born. They, you know, I can I can sort of <clears throat> classify them as what I would consider to be tree huggers, the That's convinced, right. the people who have seen the data and say, I've got to do something about this. And then the awoken, who's 12%. Talk for a moment about is is one of those groups better than the other? I mean, as you looked at at, at who's really started to move the needle. Is the group of born who's been living this their entire lives, which is 45% doing more, is it the convinced to look at the data that's 43% or the awoken, the 12% really, the, 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 what would you rather have leading a big organization? Yeah, I mean, certainly the convinced. So, of course, you want all three. Uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm the awoken. I am embarrassed to tell you I drove Suburbans with four kids to soccer games and lacrosse games for a long time. And I'm embarrassed to say that, that I have four born believer children, like really passionate, super passionate about it. And it took near death for me to get my act together. That's not exactly a great claim for fame, but it is what it is. I think the convinced might be more persuasive in this intermediate moment that we're in today. And the one thing we haven't talked about is I use the term sustainability. I do not use the term ESG. Right. Not because it's a political football, but because it's people have lost sight that it's a measurement acronym 
it is not a movement, it is perceived as one, or a noun that is all-encompassing. Sustainability to me is the umbrella above the sustainable development goals, and ESG is just a piece of it. So I think that in this moment in history, to accelerate our progress and accelerate the, the identification and development and retention of great sustainable leaders who are ready to go but need development, those convinced probably are more powerful gang than the awoken who, you know, who are kind of like, oh my God, I had an epiphany. Or those that are lecturing you and, and perhaps because they've been suffering so long, no one listened to them. So I think we need all of them and we need to reward them and celebrate them and listen to them. But but equally, I in this book and institutional investors preaching at business executives is not the way to success. So a couple of things on that. One, Kate Brandt, who's the chief sustainability officer at Google, is yeah. one of those born people. And as I read her profile and having yeah. been born in San Francisco and grown up next to John Muir Park and, That's right. and, and you know, worked in the Obama administration, I, I, to your point, the convinced in today's kind of very hyper-partisan, Correct. polarizing world seem to have a better lane, if you will, rather than the born. The other thing that I thought was really interesting that you point out in the book, Clark, is that those people who really get this typically have worked on two or more continents. So they have international experience. And the second thing is that they have experience with supply chain and operations. I thought those two things were super interesting for people to take out of if you're trying to find someone who really understands this, having international experience, And then also having seen, if you will, the impact of what you do on a day-to-day basis from an operations or supply chain management standpoint makes these people have real insight into what they're trying to combat, if you will. Incredibly powerful. If you understand the material sourcing, the potential circularity uh, of your product or development or distribution, this operational excellence, which is in the guts of the organization and, and Pre-pandemic, you wouldn't have put supply chain officers as the most celebrated function in in, in the corporate world. Um, and right now, in many cases, they are, and some they aren't if they haven't been able to adapt. But the supply chain reliability, sourcing, circularity is incredible. And so those listeners here, if you don't understand who's running your supply chain and what they are, then you're going to miss out on a leadership moment. Or number two, if they're great at their job, you better put a big old bear hug around them because this this is a pivot point for many of the companies in the world. You talked a moment ago, Clark, about investors. And we've all heard, we've read Larry Fink's annual letter and Larry's big focus at BlackRock on this. You point out in the book that Robico's based in the Netherlands, is it not? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. So Robico really kind of started this. And and then you profile Neuberger Berman, which I thought was really interesting. They've got more or less $400 billion of AUM, but they, since I think it was in 2016, the data you put forth was that only 25% of their funds were invested in sustainable companies. And this past year, they've gotten up to something like 80, 90, 86% of their funds are invested in companies that have the principles for responsible investing and, and explicitly in systemic inclusion and ESG. That's quite something. I mean, I, it sort of says to me, Newberger Berman is understanding where the world is going and putting their investors' money into really smart companies. Absolutely. So, so one of the common traits from Lynn Good to George Walker, who runs Newberger Berman, to many of the other executives we talk about, sustainability to them is not an initiative 
or a project, it is their strategy. It is the strategy of the company. It's embedded in everything they do. At Newberger Berman, fixed income, equity, private placements, anything. Every single investment note that comes to an investment committee, 100% of them has a sustainability note attached to it. 100%. So when China said they would mint BlackRock, I think JP Morgan, and then Newberger Berman as the third firm to come in to operate in China, they did that because China said, better or worse, Newberger Berman lives the sustainability analytics more than anyone else in the world we've seen as an investor. And, and we want them in China. And then people are like, who's, you know, you're sitting in Tokyo or in Seoul or, or, or in Sydney, you might be saying, who the hell's Newberger Berman? Right. Well, it's, it's really powerful how they approach it. That's really, it's, it's fascinating. On the investment side of things, you have, a, you have a great quote in the book, Clark, that's from the CEO of Adidas, Casper Orsted, who Orsted. says, a failed, a failed product innovation does not mean you stop innovating, just learn from it. Our board told me to keep on the journey, and we did for years. Talk about the Parlay shoe and the, yeah. the, the use of renewables on that. Parlay shoe is uh, the first performance sneaker that was uh, produced from ocean reclaimed plastics. So the, that big swirl in the Pacific Ocean we've all heard about, they, they went and said, we're going to create a performance sneaker that the upper canvas, the laces, and clearly the materials in the sole um, all of it comes from reclaimed plastics, and we're going to create the price point, the engineering, and they had issues with the supply chain at first, which they had to resolve. They came back and, and, and produced the parley, and then they doubled down and saying nine out of 10 of our new products will have reused materials, not ocean plastics, but they said reused materials, recycled materials, to really commit to it and understanding their consumer. And the only thing they'd say that, that about the parley shoe, which he was very open about, and and Casper's been in the press a lot recently, was that they were so focused on the materials and then the supply chain and the sourcing and the manufacturing, nobody bought the shoe. So Casper goes to the superstore on Champs-Élysées in Paris, gets on the stool, spends a half a day putting shoes on people's feet, measuring them. He said, why don't you look at the parley? And all the French said, qu'est-ce que c'est le parley? And and he'd forgotten to market it. He'd done everything else perfectly but he he had not marketed. And his lesson was, I needed to have a vision from end to end, what Heineken calls from the barley all the way to the bar. Mm-hmm. And Heineken's incredible in what they do. And Casper learned a huge lesson and his board supported him at that time that he needed an end-to-end vision for what he was doing, not just the product itself. Talk for a moment about Zhang Yu, the founder and chairman of China's Broad Group and what he's trying to do from a sustainable building product standpoint. I found it to be Amazing that one of the most innovative CEOs in this space actually is inside of China. I mean, what you just said about Newberger Berman is is somewhat contradictory to what many of us think. But talk for a moment about uh, Broad Group and what they're trying to do. So absolutely incredible, particularly if you, I'm sure you have listeners in the construction business, that they have this rolled, fascinating videos, you can look them up, rolled aluminum tubing, in essence, that the way it is laid out um, and, and the way it is stacked is as strong or if not stronger than steel. And he has assembled, their company has assembled entire apartment buildings in days because it's, it's pre prefabbed and then, you know, put it, put in modules. And it's incredible in terms of the insulation, the speed with which it can be assembled and, and the density uh, and strength of this rolled aluminum tubing. 
and he's he's out to change the world, literally change the construction world. Very patient. He's got an incredible number of patents. We had to interview him through translators. The whole thing was a fascinating conversation. But what they have been able to assemble, construct is is astounding. Wayne Frederick, who was the president of Howard University, came and spoke a couple of years ago. And one of the comments that struck me, Clark, was that Wayne said, I'm not a big fan of chief diversity officers inside of corporations because I think that CEOs need to be the chief diversity officer. And I thought that was a, a striking comment. And any good CEO who wants to make diversity mm-hmm. a priority may have a chief diversity officer but needs to eat, sleep, and breathe it. But on chief sustainability officers, you outline what makes a good chief sustainability officer in the book, someone who likes, who can deal with ambiguity and complexity. There's really no playbook here as it relates to these issues. So you've got to, you know, you can't know all the answers when you went in. And interestingly, about half of all chief sustainability officers are women. And in your study, 14%, they're the first person ever to hold this role. So there's no, there's no playbook to play off of. What else should people think about as they think about focusing on sustainability and and putting someone into that role? Yeah. So this role heretofore has been largely on influencing skills. The more they understand the operations and the business, obviously the better. But their ability to deal with ambiguity, which is a measurable competency in human beings, and their agility, a measurable competency, and persistence, a measurable competency. There's an unusual construct of the most successful CSOs who basically can roll with the punches, but their persistence, their ability to bring people along with them and look uh, at the business horizontally, not vertically, to get things done consistently across the business, across the corporation. I also feel very strongly they need to report to the chief executive officer is where things where where the company changes and, and it's embedded in everything they do. But their characteristics and competencies, back to listening skills, is super important to win the head of supply chain, the CFO, the head of marketing, the head of operations across the bench. So I want to close, Clark, on an idea that you put forth in the book that I thought was fascinating. It was such a great frame. And that is, you know, a lot of people talk about sustainability. They talk about these companies that create these big long-term goals. And there's kind of this push-pull Right now, clearly on oil, for instance, of, you know, we ought to divest from fossil fuels and at the same time we need it today and the war in Ukraine. And you use the war in Ukraine as this, what I believe is an incredible example of how the international business community moved at incredibly fast pace to divest billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of investments from Russia because they didn't agree with what Russia was doing. And I sat there and sort of thought to myself, when are we going to get to the point where there's a calling from the international community on creating a world that is non-sustainable to do for this broader issue of sustainable investing and taking care of our planet and things of that nature that gets us to the point where you can have the swift action that took place in Ukraine? I mean, you you go through bullet by bullet of the massive investments that major corporations ditched in a very short period of time. And I sat there and said, why was it that we all said what, what Putin is doing in Ukraine is so terrible that you have to get out tomorrow, and yet we're not sitting there saying what we're doing on this, this, and this is so terrible that we also need to get out tomorrow? 
Right. So, so I don't know how many hours we have left to talk in this podcast, but this, this might consume many of them. So the first thing is you highlighted, there's a shift in governance. These are boards of directors, course CEOs as well, but there's a shift in governance. I think post pandemic, a new world we live in that said, this is so important. We will be judged on how we handle this. And we will. So I think we've just gone through a seminal moment now to oil and gas. The reality is, you have read the same things I've read, we depend upon fossil fuels for a couple of decades to come, but we need to take the profitability from those fuels to fund renewables in the energy transition. I had David Rubenstein on my podcast yesterday saying, listen, this is the biggest shift in capital of any single theme he had ever seen, funding the energy transition and the opportunity and the job creation of energy transition. So the question is, can fast-moving governance address a 20- or 30-year shift? I would say maybe not that on fossil fuels, but faster-moving governance can take a stronger stand on sustainability broadly defined, which may be uses of water. Hugely underrated issue for our planet is uses of and, and sources of clean water. Healthcare in the emerging world mortality rates, hunger. These are things that also fall under the sustainability umbrella. So I agree with you. I I think I I look at it as a barbell. You have the pressure of institutional investors at one end of the barbell, and you have the pressure of employees and consumers deciding where they'll work and what they'll buy at the other end of the barbell. And, and, And the bar is bending a lot fast. I believe, I'm an optimist, that the governance of companies will move fast so the bar doesn't break. I thought it was so interesting as you're talking about kind of the transition. You point out, and it's one person, but I thought it was fantastic that a, a, a coal plant engineer being retrained and going to a hydro plant and that yep. previously they said, no, you can't go from a coal plant to a hydro plant. And they took this one gentleman and they retrained him and got him into the hydro plant. I said, you know, that story needs to be told a thousand times in West Virginia. Over and over and over to try and make it say, you're not losing your jobs. We're going to take you and retrain you in this new era of of power generation rather than just we're going to wipe out all the coal mines and your job's going to go with it. We can learn a lot of lessons from vocational training in Germany and France uh, about economic change in terms of that coal miner in West Virginia doing other things. We, We that that is where governments can come to work in the private sector in a great partnership. Because we we have the wherewithal to create these change in this transition, but part of it is is helping the workforce get there, just like that person uh, going from fossil to hydro. Yeah. Clark, the book is fantastic to anyone who is listening today. As you can tell, um, I read it, loved it, ate it up. I'm very uh, impressed. You read every, every sentence, that's for sure. It, 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 it's really great. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, it's due to uh, your brother that I know you. And so to Byrne, who I'm sure is listening and to Howard, who introduced me to Byrne, thanks to both of you for making this happen. And uh, thanks for all you're doing and and good luck in this next chapter. Great, great pleasure. Thank you for for having me here today. And thanks to Byrne and Howard as well. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.